Kaiju Island. I'm Andrew. And I'm Amanda. So what this podcast is going to be is we're going to talk about kaiju movies. Yeah, we're going to watch a movie, then we're going to come here, we're going to talk about it. And basically just unload all of the thoughts and all the things Andrew happens to know about that movie. Yeah, I've been watching giant monster movies pretty much my entire life. I love them. I know a lot about them. I've learned about them. You read books about them. You watch the director's cuts of every movie you've ever watched. <laughs> I've been, I've basically been researching for this podcast since I was born. And I've maybe seen a handful of kaiju movies and only with you. I don't think I've ever seen a kaiju movie not with you. I was trying to figure out how many you've seen. I think it's like seven. Yeah, I think it's seven or eight. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, they're all ones that I've shown you. And I've definitely not watched them critically before. So this is definitely a new take for me is paying attention to all the details and what's happening behind the scenes more than just the plot. Right. More than just a big monster appears. So Andrew's going to be coming at this podcast with all of his knowledge of kaiju stuff and research, and he's actually going to fact-check his research this time because he's actually corrected himself a few times already. Yep. And I'm just going to be some fresh eyes and coming at this with uh, fresh excitement for it. Yep. And there are definitely other giant monster, other Godzilla-related podcasts, other kaiju-related podcasts, so why, why would we make this one? Well, I think we talked about... The fact that we didn't see a lot of informational Godzilla stuff. Right. And we've seen a lot of reactionary stuff, but not a lot of people with some background knowledge, even if that background knowledge is just from reading about it and learning about it, who can provide that information because it's actually really interesting. You get get a lot of podcasts, uh, some that I love to death, uh, that are people who have seen all the movies... Or one person who's seen all the movies and one person who hasn't, but they don't often bring in research. They don't often bring in knowledge and behind-the-scenes information. So hopefully, mostly you, but me sometimes too, will (laughs) be providing some new and interesting information. At least we think so. Yeah. So why kaiju movies? What first attracted you to kaiju movies? I know you've been watching them your whole life. My dad showed me my first Godzilla movie when I was but a lad. (laughs) The movie was uh, Godzilla 1984, which I was born in 1989. So obviously that movie's older than me. But I probably saw it when I was four or five. And that's prime. You're a, a little kid, especially in my experience, little boys just love dinosaurs. I was way into dinosaurs. This Godzilla's like the biggest dinosaur. <laughs> and just my eyes lit up. So he is a dinosaur. Maybe. He definitely is if you're a kid. That's true. And, you know, it's debatable. It depends on what movie you're watching. Because each movie, we'll get into it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, and then I kind of fell away from it for a little bit. And then... Uh, I got back into Godzilla movies in high school and started learning more about behind the scenes stuff. And that is more, that's when I, like, that's when I really, really started digging in. I have something a little similar. I was given a book about sharks when I was in elementary school 
And since then, I've always, like, dreamt about giant monsters under the water. Like, I would wake up and think that my bed was floating in an ocean and see, like, shadows moving under the water. And I'm always fascinated by those pictures of the giant monsters coming out from under the water about to, like, eat or you don't know what to this tiny little rowboat that's on top of them. I don't know. I love those. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of different reasons why people get drawn to these movies and drawn to these ideas. And we will be talking about these as we go over these movies. And there's... It tends to actually draw some lines, tends to create some arguments between the fans. Some of these movies are serious. Some of them are goofy action. Some of them are, do you just watch them for monster fights? Do you just watch them to see a city explode? I feel like the United States ones are definitely more just military movies. And the thing they decide to fight for that movie is a giant monster. Uh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. But, you know, where you fall on the spectrum of do you want a serious film about serious things through the lens of monsters? And do you want a schlocky punch em up giant monster fest? Somewhere on that spectrum, people fall. Or um, just all of the above. Or all of the above all fans some even though we're all different points on that spectrum we all at the end of the day like watching a giant monster appear (laughs) for me i get the same kind of rush from seeing a giant monster show up as other people do from like superhero movies it's a little bit of a power fantasy like okay you kind of imagine yourself as the monster do you at least i always have since i was a little kid To me, it's more of a thriller aspect, like zombie apocalypse kind of thing, more than it is being the monster. But again, I haven't watched a lot, so that might change over time. So which movies did you want to talk about? What spectrum of movies do we want to talk about during this podcast? We going all all of them, baby. (laughs) We're, We're doing all of them. But... We're not doing just Godzilla movies. Mm-hmm. We're not doing just Gamera. We're not doing just Japan. I want to try and hit as much giant monster goodness so as So you just we mean can. like King Kong. You're just oh. saying King Kong. Uh, King Kong's in there too. He's what on else? my list. We're going to hit Gorgo, the British slash american kaiju movie we're gonna hit yongari the south korean kaiju movie we're gonna hit we're gonna hit all the heroes slash you know villains villains (laughs) and you know not all these movies are gonna be great i imagine at least half of them won't be good but they are all gonna be fun that's what i'm hoping for And even the ones that aren't fun, you know, even the movies that aren't fun, we'll have fun watching. And we're also not going to watch them in any specific order. The order that we're going to do, if we tried to go chronologically, we would would go insane. Slog through all the Gamera movies. (laughs) We would be slogging through all the Gamera movies in a row because all of those were pretty much year after year after year, all the old Gamera movies. So... 
we're, we're basically going to try and go really good movie, fun, maybe kind of schlocky movie, kind of rare movie, and, you know, kind of try and go in that order. Kind of go in that pattern. We may go outside that pattern. Who knows? But I think it'll be fun. And I do want to add that Andrew has an art history background. So similar to that, I think I get more enjoyment out of things like this when I learn more about the background, when I learn about the people behind the scenes, all the things that it took to go into the movie. I think those add so much to watching a movie, just like learning about the artist and the time period and the all the socioeconomic background went into pieces of art. I think that I get a lot more watching these movies with you because I get that background that goes with it. Context is king. <laughs> or Godzilla in this case. Context is king of the monsters. <laughs> so our first movie that we watched today, not not even an hour ago. Well, it ended not even an hour ago. Sure. Was the original movie. The original Godzilla movie. And I know that we had some pretty specific reasons we went with this one first. It, it seems a little cliche to start with the original. It feels like we're about to go in chronological order, but I feel like there were a lot of reasons that went into that decision. Yeah, we, we talked about maybe doing a few other ones. We talked about maybe doing Shin Godzilla. Or the American Godzilla. Yeah, uh, like Godzilla nineteen or the <laughs> Godzilla twenty fourteen, but pretty much every Godzilla movie, pretty much every kaiju movie, is trying to be Godzilla or trying to be not Godzilla. And there's just a lot of references that come back to this movie. There's a lot of thematic things that come back to this movie. Every movie is either very much a sequel to this movie or very much not a sequel to this movie. Yeah. And this is also where we meet all of the most important creators in the series. It really is the movie that started the genre. So there's no better place to start than at the beginning. So... Let's start from the beginning. I know you've seen this movie a ton of times. So before we get into your general impression, I feel like for me, it, it was just a not what I expect out of a Godzilla movie. And I have seen those one before. I want to preface that. But I you, think that when I think giant monster movies, as someone who had only recently watched my first giant monster movie, to me, they're all goofy, like you said, schlocky kind of over the top like a kung fu movie stereotype where it's translated badly and everything's a little kind of thrown together and this was just none of those things there were moments there were definitely moments that were just a little goofy but the it was very serious in a way that i was not expecting there were moments that i wanted to cry and there were the music was so dramatic and it was just very much not what i was expecting out of any giant monster movie it's very grim it's a very dark, very grim movie. There's not a lot of hopeful moments <laughs> in in this movie. I don't want to jump too far into the plot before we get into the plot, but yeah, there were even the ending was not very hopeful. Right. So the version that we watched is we watched the Criterion Collection Blu-ray version that was released in 2012. I know that they've put out a version more recently than that. I don't know if it's better than that. I don't, I have no idea. 
Some of the stuff I'm going to be saying is from the commentary track on that Blu-ray. If you are interested at all in this movie, go check out those commentary tracks. They are fantastic. There's multiple commentary tracks for that movie. I highly recommend. And we very much did not watch the English translation of this movie where, from what I'm told, they just cut up the movie and threw in a bunch of a American actor to make it more interesting to American fans. We will, in fact, be watching that in a later episode. Because <laughs> it is pretty different, right? It's, it is a different movie. So this movie comes in and you see a boat with a bunch of sailors. It is oh. later implied... Oh, you, you didn't mention our our credits in your plot summary. Our wonderful credits. The credits where they translated five names for us. They translated five names, but what did we hear underneath the credits? The music. We heard the music. And the roars. And Godzilla's roar. So, the very first thing for the movie is we hear the monster. The very first thing. So we do get a reveal of the monster very early on. And the cool thing is his roars almost sound like it's a violin or like a cello or a bass or something. And I know it's kind of like that, but it sounds like a, just a really discordant note stuck into the music. It just feels like a moment in the music. The music builds up to the roar. Would you like to know how it was made? Is it something about like honey and the bowstring? You're, you're vaguely remembering me telling you this yeah, from before, I know. aren't you? <laughs> yes. So our, our composer for the film, Akira Ifukube, created all the sound effects for the, the movie. And I'll go into Ifukube when we talk about the music later. So I was right that it's kind of built into the music. It is. Uh, he famously created the roar by taking a string off of his contrabass. Contrabass? Not contrabass. That would be a fish. Uh, his contrabass, and he rubbed it with gloves soaked in pine tar. So, yeah, you were very close. Are you proud of me? Uh, And his footsteps, I am very proud of you. Of course I'm proud of you. Uh, His footsteps were also created by Ifukube. I... I want to release a formal apology to all my friends and family. I have been saying an untruth all my entire life about this movie. I was once told long ago that Godzilla's footsteps were the sound effect of a nuclear explosion, which I learned this week wasn't true. And now that I think about it at all, (laughs) it doesn't make any sense. How would they have that sound effect? So you lied to me? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. He created the sound effect of Godzilla's footsteps by just filling a box with coils, just like metal coils, and then attached that box to an amplifier and a speaker, and then he just dropped the box. (laughs) Oh, Foley artists come up with the weirdest things. Yeah. Yeah. And he's not, he wasn't a trained Foley artist or anything, so... I I love that I didn't even question it. Like, I didn't think about it at all because I just thought, well, Andrew knows everything about Godzilla movies. Of course it's the sound of a nuclear bomb. Who told me that? Who told me that lie and then I (laughs) spread it around? (laughs) Maybe you just made it up. 
You you may continue with the actual plot. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> so it comes in on a boat, and I remember you telling me it's a significant reference, but I'll let you go to that one because I don't really remember the facts, but it's a boat full of sailors, and they're all just hanging out, and then you start seeing some bubbles and light come up from the ocean, and there's a flash, and all the sailors take cover, and something is sinking this boat. We don't see it. We don't know what it is yet. Well, we do, but we don't. <laughs> so that's how the movie opens. It's the name of the movie, is what's, is what's sinking the boat. So, two things about this. We started off with the sounds of Godzilla, and now we're seeing the effects of Godzilla. So we're slowly getting a trickle of, like, reveal of him. And two, you mentioned that, yeah, it's an important boat. This is a fishing boat, uh, and it's a reference to the Daigo Fukuryu Maru. And I, I took three years of Japanese in high school. I'm sort of confident in my my pronunciation of Japanese, but I'm very sorry if I mispronounce things. I'm going to do my best, but I'm not, I'm not Japanese. The Daigo Fukuryu Maru is known in the West as the Lucky Dragon number five. And it was a, a disaster event known as the Lucky Dragon number five that happened six or seven months before the release of this movie. This was fresh in the minds of the Japanese public. It's a fishing boat that wandered into the nuclear testing waters of an American, basically an American nuclear testing site. It just wandered into the waters because it was a secret nuclear testing site. And so they didn't reveal where the borders of the water, where the fallout would be, basically. They all got irradiated. All the, you know, crew. Lovely. All their fish were irradiated. A bunch of the fish got brought back to Japan and made it onto market. Got sold to people. People ate the fish. A bunch of people who ate the fish got radiation sickness. A lot of people died. And it's an event that's referred to as the third bombing of Japan. So just, you know, jumping right in with all the nitty gritty stuff. Yeah. So this is all stuff that is fresh in the minds of the audience who would be watching this movie in theaters. And they know exactly what this is a reference to. Especially with the lights coming out of the water so clearly a reference to a nuclear explosion this is a direct reference to so it's like a 9-11 reference in 2002 basically yes Yes. definitely so there's one part of that that i'm not 100 percent sure on you said it's a fishing boat but the per the very next scene shows a man named ogata who picks up the phone when it's ringing and he says south sea salvage this is ogata so i think it's a salvage ship it's yeah i think you're right i think i've always assumed it was a fishing boat because of the reference it was making but i think you're probably right because they had to have a reason to bring in the main character right who apparently works on a salvage company yeah and so the next scene comes in with ogata receiving this phone call And he seems to be in the room with who I assumed was his girlfriend or sister. She's also very pretty. So in my mind, I immediately think these are the main characters because they're both gorgeous. (laughs) Uh, Can I talk about these two actors briefly? Sure. The male lead 
the the character's name is Hideto Ogata, Ogata for the rest of the movie, is played by one Akira Takarada. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Akira Takarada because we are going to be seeing a lot of Akira Takarada. Akira Takarada is the most common actor in Toho kaiju films. He is still around. He is still a very beloved actor in the kaiju fan scene. He's such a lovely, warm person. So we will talk about him later. I just wanted to point him out. We're going to be seeing him a lot. He's a baby in this movie. I remember you saying, I think at least five times throughout the movie, he's so young. He looks so young. You said that a lot. Yes. Also, when you were filling out that app recently of all the movies you've ever seen, wasn't he, for a pretty good chunk of time, the number one actor that you've seen? Yes. (laughs) Because he's in so many kaiju movies. The female lead, Emiko Yamane, known as Emiko throughout the whole movie, they refer to her by her first name because there's like three Yamanes in this movie. There's three? There's uh, maybe maybe just two. Just two. There's Dr. Yamane, Emiko Yamane. Yes. She's played by uh, Momoko Kochi. And she, Akira Takarada, and few other actors we'll get to later, uh, were all part of Toho's New Face program in 1953. So they're all... Basically, new actors brought in by Toho because they were all fresh, young, new faces. And they were gorgeous. And they're all gorgeous. (laughs) And they're all not yet trained as actors by the time that they're in this movie. This is all pretty much their first big movie. Especially Momoko Kochi. She actually, she did this movie, and you could tell she's kind of struggling in this movie as an actress. She's not... There's definitely a few, like, 20s moments where she throws herself against a wall and sobs dramatically or something like that. Yeah. She did this movie, did a couple other movies that we'll see her in. She was in The Mysterians, which we'll get to at some point. And then she left Toho, which I don't think we've said explicitly, but Toho is the company that makes Godzilla movies to become a formal to get a formal acting training and then she became a stage actor and then she came back for one last Toho movie was that recently in 1994 not as recently as I was thinking so the next several scenes were all summarizing the fact that there were several more ships attacked they do discover some survivors three survivors specifically who all seem to have some sort of burns or injuries. And I think you were saying they were radiation burns. Yep. Um, Again, clearly a reference to the Lucky Dragon. It mostly takes place at this point in the office of the salvage company, which is a weird place for them to be dealing with this emergency, is at the salvage company. Yep. Uh, They're the ones spearheading this search for the cause of this... um, disaster that keeps happening which is a little strange but you know having they need a reason to bring in the main characters at this point and then they go to a fishing village on a small island where there's a group of villagers who see survivors from fishing boats coming in on rafts or one survivor specifically and they're not catching fish and this old man says it must be 
Godzilla. And that's the first time we hear the word Godzilla in the movie, right? Other than the title, obviously. Correct. He also says, I don't know if you caught this. Something about throwing the cows to Godzilla? Is that what you're talking about? Not not the cows. Well, he does also say that. Well, he calls the women cows. Yes. He mentions that we used to do this thing where we would send all the young women off to be eaten by Godzilla. Those were the days. Man, I wish we could still do that, but now we just dance. It's like, yeah. what a weird, what a weird dude. I would say he is the most problematic part of this whole movie. Yeah, but I think you're supposed to think that he's a weird old dude. Like, I don't think he's supposed to be like a a sagely old man or anything. That's true. He doesn't ever really have the wise words of yeah. what to do. He's just like, it must be Godzilla. And I think they really only bring that in so that they have a reason to name yeah. him that. Is he's just named after some fantasy deity. Right. And the reporter next to him is just like, oh yeah, God- <laughs> Godzilla, sure. And we do learn from the survivor they pulled off the raft that it is some sort of giant creature causing all these raft, uh, causing all these boats to sink. He did say that. Sure. He's like, I knew you wouldn't believe me, but it was... And some giant creature and then they cut to a scene where everybody in the village is sleeping and there seems to be some storm happening there's lots of rain things are rattling around and then the house collapses right the house collapses and i don't know if you did you see anything in the house collapsing were you able to see it with the the small bit of glare on our tv I I don't know what you're going after. There, you can see Godzilla's foot crushing the house. Can you? You can. So again, we're getting little trickles of Godzilla. You, you hear his roar, you see his effects, you hear his name, and then you see, like, his heel. Uh, after that, it goes to a government meeting of some kind. You said it was kind of like a senate. I kind of got that vibe yeah. as well. Some sort of meeting is happening with a bunch of leaders all in one room. And this is where we meet Professor Kyohei Yamane. Did I say that correctly? You did. Which is, we find out later, Emiko's father. He's a paleontologist that they brought into this situation for some reason, not knowing anything about what's causing it, just that something's destroying ships and one guy says it's a giant monster, so of course bring in the paleontologist. Why? Yeah. Why not? With the shortest tie in the world. Did you see how short his tie was? It came to, like, above his belly button. (laughs) And then he didn't have it tucked in to his jacket until halfway through his speech. And then he realized and he just tucked it in. Yeah, he's a big dork. And I will say, though, that he's still pretty attractive. Like, I think in these movies it's and in just movies in general you can tell who the main characters are because they're the most attractive people in the room yes unless you're watching a teen drama and then everyone's attractive for some reason would you like to hear about dr yamane yes dr yamane is played by the legendary actor takashi shimura he's most famous for appearing in akira kurosawa movies like rashomon ikiru and seven samurai you've seen seven samurai just recently for the first time yes He's the leader, the older leader samurai. Seven Samurai and Godzilla were filmed and released at the same time, basically. Akira Kurosawa and Ishiro Honda, the director of this movie, were good friends. 
And so they shared actors and stuff like that. I'll get into that a little bit later. Him being here is a sign, it should be a sign to Western audiences, that the split between serious drama movies and dumb monster movies doesn't exist. Especially not at this time. It's not a thing that exists. But would American audiences at this time know about Seven Samurai just as much as they know about this movie? Yes. Is that a thing they would have been exposed to? Yes. They, Seven Samurai, I believe, was released in America before Godzilla was. I'm not positive about that. I'll have to double check that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's the case. There's one other thing I want to bring up about Takashi Shimura. It's one of my favorite quotes ever. In David Callett's book, A Critical History and Filmography of Toho's Godzilla series, he says this quote, and I'm just going to read the quote because it's so well written. The New York Times, reviewing Kurosawa's Ikiru, uh, 1952, called Shimura, quote, the best actor in the world, unquote. But when reviewing the eventual American release of Gojira as Godzilla King of the Monsters, the very same paper declared, not one of them can act. That's so sad. <laughs> I thought it was pretty good acting. Yeah, but that's the that's the dubbed, like, chopped up version. That's fair. Like my original impression of Giant Monsters, it's kind of the stereotype. Yeah. I just, I love that so much. But while he's in here, he says this thing about, we have to go search the oceans. There's these crevices that have been sealed off of forever. We need to go search them. We don't know what caused this. Maybe it's the ocean. And this is the first moment that I would like to declare plot progression knowledge. I've dubbed it in my notes. (laughs) (laughs) It comes up a few times in this movie where a character will just know a thing or have an idea with no basis whatsoever that just happens to move the plot in the direction it needs to go. Yeah, it it does happen a lot. (laughs) So the very next scene shows Emiko Ogata and the Professor Yamane going off on this ship and being sent off by this guy in an eye patch and a suit with a bunch of scars all over his face who's sweating very profusely throughout this whole movie. And all we know right now is that his name is Sarazawa, and we don't really know much else about him. I think he looks like a Bond villain. He's definitely the biggest character in the movie, for for sure. Yeah. He uh, is made to look like a mad scientist. Very much so. I remember you said that the the first time we watched this, that as an audience at that time would know, we're supposed to think that he was injured in the war. Yes, and there actually is a single line in the movie that says, uh, Ogata, very later in the movie, says, if the war didn't happen, he would still have both eyes. Oh, I think I missed that. Yeah. So he, he's a, a, there's a lot of very subtle references to the war in this movie, which this movie was released 1954. The war ended 1945. It's very fresh in people's minds. A lot of people are talking about rebuilding from the war. So the war is big. It's a big part of this movie. It's a big part of Japan. So So then the scene cuts to they're not exploring the oceans. They are going to the fishing village that has been basically just destroyed. A bunch of 
buildings have been crushed in, and you see the main characters walking around. Somebody has a Geiger counter. The professor says, huh, wouldn't, what'd you think if I told you this was a giant footprint? And no one really says anything about that. And they're saying, don't touch this water, this is radioactive. And then two seconds later, the professor bends down and picks up something in the water and then puts his hand back in the water and pulls it out again with his bare hand in this water they just declared radioactive. With his bare hand. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're exploring this island. They think it's a giant footprint. We're kind of getting closer and closer to this is a monster of some kind. And then we actually get our first look at Godzilla very shortly after this. Uh, before we see Godzilla, we see people walking up a hill. You don't know this? This is also going to happen a lot. People walking up hills? People walking up hills. Every uh, Ishiro Honda directed film has people walking up hills. See, I didn't comment on that because it was people walking up a hill. He likes having people walk up hills. Oh, okay. I'll keep he, a lookout for that. Honda believed that uh, exercise was important to creating a uh, strong sense of self and creating unity and community. Um, and so he often made his actors just walk up hills for scenes. So he's forcing his actors to exercise in his scenes is what you're saying? Yes. And this is the first example of it that I know of. That just seems like somebody on a power trip. <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that one. Then we see Godzilla for the first time. They hear some pounding and the ground's kind of vibrating and they crest up over this hill and you see Godzilla's head poking out from behind a mountain. It's the first shot we get, the first clear shot we get out of the monster, even if it's just from the neck up. And you hear his roar and again, I just was struck by how much his roar sounded like music. It sounded like it was part of the soundtrack. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about Godzilla's design. Just just a little bit. We'll talk a little bit more about it later, too. First of all, Godzilla's name. Do you Have I told you about where Godzilla's name comes from? Do you I'm remember? I'm sure you have. I think you have. I just don't remember. Godzilla's name is a portmanteau. It's... A combination of two words for the Japanese words Kujira and Gorira, which are the Japanese words for whale and gorilla. How is he a whale? He's not a whale or a gorilla. It's two words that sound big, sound like big animals. So you combine them and it creates the sense of something really big. There's a story of that's probably apocryphal. It's probably not real. But there's a story that that was a nickname. Gojira was probably a nickname, or not probably, probably not, a nickname for an overweight staff member at Toho. That's so sad. Yeah. And so they were like, that's the name of our monster. We're, we're going to call the, the monster that. There's little moments that bring me back into what year this movie was made, because it, there's little moments that are very much of their time. And yeah. I also, real fast, we've kind of gone this whole time not really talking about what the name of the movie is. Is the name of the movie Gojira? Or is the name of the movie Godzilla? Some people like to refer to this movie as Gojira to separate it from all the rest. 
because the rest of them are... There's a few movies that are named Godzilla, just Godzilla. And this one is Gojira. And some people like to call it Gojira because that lends it an air of weight and drama that the rest of the movies, quote-unquote, don't have. But Gojira is... G-O-J-I-R-A is just an Americanization of Japanese characters in the same way that G-O-D-Z-I-L-L-A is also an Americanization of Japanese characters. So it all is just made up. (laughs) So if you're going to call it by anything, my opinion is you just call it Godzilla. Call it Godzilla 1954 if you have to call it something. Call it the original Godzilla or just call it Godzilla. Yes, it's very confusing that there's four movies called Godzilla. <laughs> but that's not my fault. And then one last thing is Godzilla was originally supposed to be a uh, octopus. What? And the producer, Tanaka, uh, decided that was bad. He said no. And then they wanted to make him scaly like an eastern dragon. And they, Tanaka also was like, no. <laughs> um, a scaly octopus. No, they they basically came back with Godzilla, how he looks now, mm-hmm. except scaled. So he would just look like a dragon. Just then. look like a boring dragon, yeah. He would look like Puff the Magic Dragon. Yes, yes. But bigger. But bigger. So the next scene is the professor in front of... Some sort of presentation. He's giving a presentation about Godzilla. He shows a picture of Godzilla from what they we've seen so far. And talks about the Jurassic era. How we should know that he's from the Jurassic era. Or something like that. He, he says some very suspicious paleontology. It, it's 1954. I understand that we're going off of old versions of how dinosaurs are, but the paintings he shows of Some dinosaurs. Some fat, dopey T-Rex. Yes. Whose arms barely stick out of his body like little yeah. twigs. That's not... That ain't how dinosaurs do. And he just knows that Godzilla was woken up from a deep sea cave from a hydrogen bomb. Yeah, that's interesting. This Godzilla was not made by nukes. He was woken up by them. And that's not the case in a lot of later movies. I think that's an interesting point. And I think this is number two of the plot progression knowledge that was just granted to him. He just knows that? Yeah. Yeah. He just puts it together. Of course he was woken up by a hydrogen bomb. What else would he have been woken up with? And he does give some vague defenses into this, but I think I'm calling that part two of that. Yeah. And you did point out there are a lot of women in this room. In this, what did we call it, a Senate room? There's a lot of women here, and they are very vocal, Mm -hmm. just as much as the men are. I didn't think to write it down when we were watching, but they're like the... It's like the housewives representation or something like that. It's, It's specifically like a group of housewives at the Diet Building... But the interesting thing is that their voice is just as equal, if not greater than the officials, because the officials are all 
all arguing, we have to keep this secret, we can't tell anybody, they're going to freak out. And the housewives are like, no, that's exactly why we have to tell everybody. They have to right. know about this. And they apparently win this argument because very quickly after this, we see people, the general public, responding to the fact that Godzilla exists. Right. But then again, how are you going to keep this secret exactly when there's a giant 50-meter monster walking around and destroying whole villages? TVs do exist at this time. Yeah. It's going to be increasingly difficult to hide. (laughs) But they're about to kill him, so it's fine. (laughs) So we cut to... They've decided they're going to bomb Godzilla with depth charges, which you explained as bombs that go off at a certain depth under the water. Yeah, they just basically throw bombs into the water. And Special underwater (laughs) bombs. We see Professor Yamane being really sad about this. He thinks that we shouldn't kill Godzilla, we should study him. So doesn't really give a reason beyond that, just that he thinks we need to study him. So uh, there's a lot of people who get, I think rightfully, upset at Yamane for wanting to save Godzilla, or like study Godzilla instead of killing him. Like, in discussions about this movie, a lot of people are like, God, Yamane is really stupid for wanting to study him instead of killing him. And I agree <laughs> but I was wondering where you're going with this. But I think that the reason that he gives is actually very interesting because he doesn't want to just study Godzilla. He mentions multiple times that he wants to study why Godzilla is so resistant to radiation. He wants to use Godzilla to help people be safe from another nuclear attack. Yeah, but he's already wrecked an entire village. Oh, oh! again, it's a bad reason. <laughs> it's a bad reason. I just think that him connecting it to another, nu- uh, another nuclear attack or fallout from more fishing boats, for instance, being in fallout, I just think that that connection is really fascinating. He, he basically has seen, oh, I can use this knowledge to protect my country. He is trying to do what everyone else is trying to do and protect Japan. He's just doing it in a weird, very roundabout way. (laughs) He's kind of a doof. He's a bit of a doof. This is also where they actually establish concretely that Emiko is Professor Yamane's daughter. We knew it because we had seen the movie before. You had talked to me about it. She calls him father at some point during the island, but you never cut to him after she says the word father. So I think it's implied up to here, but this is where she goes up to him and calls him father. It's also the scene of him sulking in a dark room. Turn off the light. (laughs) I can't be in any place with joy. (laughs) But now Godzilla's dead. Everyone's partying. There's a boat in the water where people are dancing. And then, of course, he's not, because that would be the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. People are partying on this boat. Godzilla pops out of the water. Everyone screams, and Godzilla's back. He just gives him a little spook. He doesn't even kill him. (laughs) He just pops out and goes, boo! (laughs) By the way, not dead. Bye! Yeah. (laughs) So, Yamane is then asked by, I'm assuming, military officials, how do you kill Godzilla? And he says... It's impossible. We can't kill him. An H-bomb didn't kill him. How are we supposed to kill him? We should study him. And this is, I think, where he gives his argument about why 
And then the press are talking, and they mention, we should go talk to Emiko's fiancé, Professor Yamane's future son-in-law. We should ask him for an interview. And, of course, we're all thinking that that means they're going to go talk to Ogata for some reason. Don't know what he's going to add to any of this. Turns out he's not her fiancé. She's engaged to... Eye patch dude, Dr. Sarazawa. Dr. Sarazawa. Played. See, I knew his name. Huh? See, I knew his name. You did know his name. Played by uh, Akihiko Hirata, who was also part of the New Face program in 1953. He was a very good actor. I think he was one of the best actors of the movie. Yes. He will also be showing up a lot in the older Godzilla movies. He'll be showing up throughout what's known as the Showa series. Um, which is the series that goes up till 1974. He was a pretty common face throughout the older series. He died in 1984, so he basically didn't get a chance to show up in any of the, the later movies. Oh, he died really young then. He died very young. I think he had some sort of cancer and he died really young, yeah. But when Emiko's actress, Momoko Kochi, showed up in a later Godzilla movie that we'll get to... They showed footage of Dr. Sharazawa at the same time. So it's as if both of them were in the same movie. So it goes to the reporter going to ask Emiko if she can get him in for an interview with Dr. Sharazawa. She agrees and takes him to him. While they're there, the researcher says, I'm told your research, I'm told by. A friend of a friend of a friend that your research could help us to defeat Godzilla. And, and Dr. Serhazawa denies this. Doesn't want to talk about his research. He deflects it. The reporter leaves. Emiko stays behind and asks, what are you studying? What are you doing? I'm engaged to you. I don't know anything about you, apparently. And <laughs> he shows her to his Frankenstein lab. Again, establishing him as this mad scientist. Really creepy. In any other movie, he would be the villain. And they make him look like it, too. The profusely sweating thing, the fact that he doesn't have any friends, apparently. Yeah. His eye patch. Yeah. <laughs> he shows her this experiment he's doing where he drops the... I guess it's not an experiment. The results of his research where he drops this pod or this metal casing into a tank of fish. And we see a flash. She, do we even see a flash right now? We see light. She shrieks and runs out of the room. We don't see what happened in the fish tank, but we do see that he makes her swear to not talk about it. Yes. So at the Yamane residence, they are just talking, and then it sounds like Godzilla's appearing again. They all rush out of the house, and as they're running out, Emiko stops Ogata, Ogata and says... I didn't get to tell him about us, meaning that it's kind of becoming apparent that there's some sort of love triangle going on, and he doesn't say anything? He just kind of shakes her shoulder, like, you're doing great. (laughs) And this was definitely the moment to bring this up. Yes, (laughs) now is the time. And Godzilla has come to Tokyo. We get our first full shot of Godzilla. We get to see the suit. Yes, we do. That suit, every suit has a nickname. Does it? It does. This suit is known as the Shodai Goji. What does that mean? Not a clue. (laughs) 
Um, uh, that's just its name. There is a full suit. There's also a partial suit that was like like a previous suit that was like too heavy, and so they just cut it in half. He could wear the top half for under when he's half underwater, and he could wear the bottom half with suspenders for scenes that are just of the the feet. And of course, our favorite, the hand puppet, that is just the head and arms. <laughs> Which we said looked like... A Muppet. It looks like a Muppet. He's got, like, these folds on the sides of his mouth like a Muppet does when his mouth is closed. His eyes are a little wonky where they're kind of both pointed off in different directions. He has these really high cheeks that, again, remind me of a Muppet. It's just the... The puppet is pretty dopey. And it looks really good when it's using the breath weapon. Mm -hmm. But other than that, it looks... When the mouth is closed, it looks really goofy. Like a weird picture of a dog you got at just the right moment. I love that puppet so much. (laughs) The suit itself, famously, could reach up to 60 degrees Celsius inside, which is 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, thank you. Especially right now in this heat wave, that just sounds terrible. And he could not move the left hand at all. What? It was just too stiff. He could not move the left hand. So every time you see him like picking stuff up, he's always doing it with his right hand. It weighed 200 pounds. So Godzilla is canonically right-handed. Yes. <laughs> it weighed 200 pounds, and they didn't have easy access to rubber because it was too soon after the war. And so it was made out of concrete. What? It was made out of a special kind of concrete that was more flexible than normal concrete, but it was made out of concrete. He wore a concrete suit in water? Yes. Yes. That's according to an article I found on the BBC that was referring to an interview with the suit actor. So, yes. (laughs) Seems safe. Yes. I'm assuming this is before there's any type of regulations on industries in Japan. Definitely not enough. (laughs) The suit actor... Since we've been talking about actors, the suit actor, there were actually two suit actors for this movie. The very famous one uh, is Haruo Nakajima. The other one is Katsumi Tezuka. Katsumi Tezuka is credited as a suit actor. We do not see him in this movie. <laughs> he is He was kind of too old to be in this suit that was 200 pounds and got to 140 degrees inside. And so he just could not move inside, and all the shots that they filmed of him never made it into the movie. I mean, at least he still gets credited. Yes. I think that's kind of cool. But Haru and Nakajima portrayed Godzilla throughout almost all of the Showa series. He portrayed Godzilla all the way up to 1972. So from 1954 to 1972, Godzilla was one guy. Haru and Nakajima. Oh, and I guess maybe also Katsumi Tezuka. In some not shown shots. We'll be hearing his name a lot in these movies, obviously. Nakajima started in film as a struggling stuntman. He basically went from studio to studio, not really getting any good jobs. He did one cool stunt. My best understanding is he did one good stunt in front of the producer, I think. And Tanaka was like, that's our guy. (laughs) 
and he goes on to do a lot of Godzilla movies, right? He does a lot of Godzilla movies. He also did a lot of suit acting in other movies. Like, he wasn't just Godzilla. He did a ton of suit acting. And he invented this. This is a form of acting he invented. No one had ever done this kind of acting before. Is this the first suit acting movie? Yes. They were inventing making the suit. They were inventing acting in the suit. They were inventing all the special effects for the the movie. Oh and my gosh. The tiny little town displays they made were yeah. so cute. And one, one more little thing about Nakajima. He said that he based Godzilla's walk. He went to the zoo. And he watched, they had one Indian elephant at the Japanese zoo, or at the Tokyo Zoo, named Indira. And he just watched that elephant a bunch, and he based Godzilla's walk on the elephant. And he he specifically focused on the way each foot came to a complete rest on the ground before it moved again. And then he also paid attention to how bears moved their arms. So it walks like an elephant, moves its arms like a bear... And it moves its head like a bird. And none of these are gorillas or whales. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Or an octopus. Or an octopus. (laughs) But basically, in the scene, all he does is he just destroys a few things and leaves. He throws a bridge, very reminiscent of X-Men to me, where Magneto lifts the bridge and turns it. With one hand. (laughs) Yes, we've established he is (laughs) right-handed. And then he just leaves... We cut to a military scene where they're talking about what are they going to do about this. And they decide to put up some electric wire barriers. But only in Tokyo Bay. Because of course he's coming back here. Plot progression knowledge number three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and not going to go anywhere else. Yep. He's never, yeah. Why would he go anywhere else? Tokyo is where it's at. <laughs> So they start evacuating Tokyo and the nearby areas, it seems like. We see some people going into evacuation sites and the military gearing up for this next section. And then one day later, of course he comes back to Tokyo. I did miss the part where Okada is going to ask for Emiko's hand from Professor Yamane. But instead, the professor comes in just devastated that they're gonna kill Godzilla they don't even want to try to not kill him and Ogata reasonably says well of course we need to kill him he's killing people and destroying things and just picks a fight instead of asking for her hand in marriage because that's how you do it I'm gonna ask your dad to marry you here let me get into a political argument with him (laughs) and then Godzilla comes back one day later. They set up everything overnight. And and here's the quote from my notes. Godzilla don't care about electricity or cannons. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> this is the first breath weapon shot. It is. He melts the electric towers with his breath weapon, which isn't anything what I thought it would look like. I, you know, I'm used to the electricity-looking ones or the fire-looking ones where it's like a blue or a red. Beam. Yeah, a beam. And this is more of a mist. It's right. very much, and I've heard it talked about before, not fire. Sure. It's radiation. Right. It's just like pure radiation. 
You want to know how they did the uh, electric towers melting? How do they do it? This is another thing I have heard and have not confirmed. So, big asterisks before and after this. I This might be wrong. But I am pretty sure that he made the, the special effects director, Eiji Tsuburaya, made the electric towers out of wax and then shined the bright studio lights on them and then just filmed them melting. That's such a clever way to do it. I'm pretty sure that that's right. I've heard that m- in multiple places. And that obviously that's how the truth works. <laughs> Can I talk about Eiji Tsuburaya for a little bit? No. Okay. Go for it. Oh. Eiji Tsuburaya uh, is considered to be the father of Japanese special effects. He's the special effects director of this movie. And he basically was inventing all special effects as he went. <laughs> he didn't really have anything to go off of as he was going. He was inventing tokusatsu. Excuse me? <laughs> Uh, tokusatsu is the Japanese genre of suit special effects movies and TV shows and stuff. So Godzilla is tokusatsu. Anything that uses miniatures is tokusatsu. Anything that's practical, practical effects and has miniatures is tokusatsu. So they did a lot of that in this movie. I definitely noticed yes. you can tell when they use the miniature sets and it looks really good. They put a lot of time into it. But sometimes they just used a toy car and they just blew it over. Sure. Or some toy trains and they just, it looks like a little kid ramming a toy train into another toy train. Yeah. A.G. Subaraya was famously, notoriously a perfectionist. They built at least one of those sets twice because the first time it didn't look good enough to him. And each of those sets took like a month to build and he had his team just build it and then tear it all the way down and these sets are some of the most detailed ones that they've used in the entire series because they had like chairs and tables inside of them so that they would like have things as they were being destroyed and they shingled them all on the roofs by hand and it just is absolutely insane He also made the suit, and he was inventing that process on his own. But it paid off, because it looks fantastic when buildings are getting destroyed. I just wonder if stepping on those buildings hurts. I imagine it does, because you're getting all these sharp sticks and walls in your foot. Yeah. And no matter how many layers are between your foot and that thing, it's probably going to hurt. Yeah. But... As we will establish again and again and again, that suit actor is a badass. Yes. <laughs> Incredibly so. <laughs> I, I just can't keep... I can't not see the Godzilla don't care about electricity line in my notes. Godzilla don't care about electricity in this movie. <laughs> um, so he's wrecking everything. We did just see people going into evacuation shelters... But nobody's in shelters while he's wrecking everything. There's people all over the streets running around. There's press up in these towers filming things. There is just... It doesn't look like anyone's sheltered. You see this 
woman huddling with her young children in the corner of two buildings and she says we're gonna go with daddy soon and that that was the moment that i almost cried so that's a very famous scene i actually wrote down the exact line she says we're going to join daddy we'll be where daddy is soon and i've heard two interpretations of this the very obvious one is her telling her kids it's okay that we're about to die and the other interpretation i've heard is that someone is going to come rescue us. I'm so used to that line being used for it's okay that I'm dying because I'm going to be with X, Y, or Z. Right. Because it gets used that way a lot nowadays. Right. But I don't know if it was that common in 54. And I don't know if we're applying a Western interpretation when we say we're going to join daddy. Because like that seems like a very, I'm going to meet dad in heaven yeah. And that just seems like very Western bias to me. That's true. So I don't know what is the real interpretation there. Either way, very sad. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Absolutely not a, not exactly a happy scene. So earlier we hear Dr. Yamane tell the military people, don't shine spotlights at him. He doesn't like spotlights. You're just going to make him mad with no basis whatsoever. At all. Don't He's know. never even interacted with him with spotlights before. <laughs> Don't know where he got that from. And this is where I feel like that line is supposed to come back in because they show the reporters up in this tower and they cut to the scene of the tower come from a zoomed out shot where the tower is flashing these camera lights at Godzilla and... It seems very purposeful because after that, Godzilla starts moving towards the tower and attacking it. They like proved that that's why, because this is a very trimmed down movie, so they don't really put in a lot of unnecessary shots like that. And then, you know, they do, they bomb him with jets that all miss. <laughs> yeah, I think they didn't know how to safely do explosions on the suit, and so they just make all the missiles. Just go wildly missing Godzilla. <laughs> and it just makes all the those jet fighters that were just fighting in a war <laughs> nine years ago just look completely incompetent. Well, I mean, they've been out of practice for nine years. I guess. <laughs> so then we go to a hospital scene. And I would say that this is probably the most emotional part of the movie. This is the kind of turning point where... Emiko decides that she has to break her secret with Dr. Sarazawa. She is volunteering at this hospital. They're measuring people for radiation. You see all these people with radiation injuries. And you see... I don't know if it's the same mother as before, but you see this woman who is obviously dead... And her daughter crying over her body. This little, what, two or three year old girl. And Emiko picks up the little girl and walks away with her as they take off, take away the mother's body. And she says, mommy will be back soon. Which to me just seemed like the worst thing you could say to anyone who's grieving is a lie. Because that's not... Anyway, I'm going to get on my soapbox if I keep going in that direction. <laughs> Uh, so 
after seeing all this, it's definitely the low point of the movie, the part that's the big kind of changing tone. She pulls Ogata into a stairwell, don't know why he's here, guess he's volunteering too, and tells him about Dr. Sarazawa's experiments or invention. We cut to a flashback of the scene with her in the lab. You see the flash and then you actually see the pod or metal sphere drop in and these bubbles start coming out of it. And then you see the fish and then bubbles and then bones of the fish. And he explains what the oxygen destroyer is. It quote unquote splits oxygen atoms into fluid. Whatever science fiction nonsense yeah it's not <laughs> it doesn't make any sense but the I, the whole point of the oxygen destroyer is to make a it, it's supposed to be a weapon more powerful than a nuke scarier than a nuke i don't buy that it's scarier than a nuke because the oxygen destroyer doesn't create fallout <laughs> it also gets into dr sarazawa's moral debate about he's so terrified of this thing being used to hurt people that he refuses to tell anyone about it and even says that he would destroy his notes and kill himself before letting his work be used for anything that might hurt others and he's determined to find a positive use for it. I don't know what you could possibly use an oxygen destroyer for good for, but whatever, man. I think I've always interpreted it as he was trying to he was researching something else and discovered a weaponing weaponizing that makes more sense like he was maybe researching like a medical use for oxygen or something like that and that makes more sense to me i just thought he was trying to make a good use for this (laughs) nuke how can i use this nuke for good i've created a death beam (laughs) It's going to save lives. (laughs) So Emiko and Ogata go to Sarazawa's place to convince him that this is how they're going to defeat Godzilla. This is how they're going to save more lives from being lost. And when they get there, they see a bowl of fish on his table. Like a bowl, a fish bowl on his table, which seems so morbid to me, which it's like having your lab mice sitting out on your kitchen table. It's just cruel. <laughs> he, of course, refuses and runs downstairs to destroy his research before they can, I guess, take it from him or convince him otherwise. They show on the TV that just happens to be on in the room the fallout of Godzilla. They show the hospital and all the injured and they show this choir of girls who are singing sadly. They play a song known as Prayer for Peace uh, that was written by Akira Ifukube, the composer. And I would like to take this chance to talk about Akira Ifukube, the composer. Um, (laughs) Such a smooth (laughs) lead-in. Prayer for Peace actually is interesting because it was performed by students of the Toho High School of Music. Except for the girl in the front who obviously never learned the words. (laughs) The one who wasn't performing. Which, it's the High School of Music. So it's a school, it sounds like it's maybe a school specifically for music. 
which I just think is interesting. It definitely seems like more of a new age concept. Yeah. Having high schools that are geared towards certain trades, but maybe that's just a Western new age concept and Eastern schools have had that for longer. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, Akira Fukube was, or is the composer for the film. He was kind of raised, he wasn't raised by or even really raised around, but he was exposed a lot to Ainu culture. And the Ainu are the, they're essentially the Native American equivalent to Japan. They're the Native Japanese. They're the native tribes of Japan. Yeah. They're a very neglected, very harmed by the Japanese government. It's exactly the same. Oppressed. Very oppressed, yeah. It's the the comparison is very, very close actually. And that influence comes out a lot through his music. Ifukube's music is not Japanese style. It's Ainu, with kind of a Japanese tinge to it, uh, which is why his music doesn't sound like anyone else's. You can hear a song and go, that's Ifukube. That doesn't sound like anything else I've ever heard, <laughs> because he plays music in a way that no one else ever does. I don't know a lot about music in general, so I can't really go into <laughs> why, but he... He didn't study Western music. He didn't study Mozart or anything like that. He studied Ainu music. Also, people often look at how long he had to compose the music and go, Oh, he only wrote this song in a couple days. He's amazing. And I agree with the second part. He is amazing. But that's just how Japanese filmmaking works. You... Only give your composers a couple days. You say, I need this song, and they go, all right. And that's just that's just how it goes. He also famously did not know at all what the monster was going to look like before composing the music. They said, we want this monster to look big and scary. Make some music that goes with that. He died in 2006. He's just one of those like core important people to kaiju films but he's also just one of those core pillars of japanese cinema in general he he was so important as a composer and didn't he come back in later movies he did so much music in these movies (laughs) so much music and he you'll hear the same music from this movie in a lot of movies but they never just took the same exact song and just plopped it from one to another. Mm-hmm. He always did a different rendition. So it's always slightly different. That's cool. Yeah. So back to Serizawa. He, after seeing this, agrees. Because, you know, he's human too. <laughs> he has a heart. He agrees to let them use his technology. But as soon as he says that, he goes and burns his notes. In saying that, okay, but no one else will ever get to use this. So we go to a boat. You see Sarazawa getting ready to get into his diving gear because he has to manually set this bomb. And Emiko, Dr. Yamane, and Ogata are all here for some reason. Because they're plot important. (laughs) And Ogata insists... That he has to go down to. That 
Sarazawa has no diving experience and he can't just do this on his own. So he demands to go too. We see our first shot and, you know, of the auction destroyer, which by the way, looks rad. It looks so cool how it works and it just looks so legitimate. Mm -hmm. The oxygen destroyer is uh, one of the longest lasting props in Toho film history because it's all made out of metal and glass. It looks kind of like a lantern a little bit. It's this metal ball in a glass case with metal caps on either end with metal rods connecting the two ends sure. is what it looks like right sure and we'll go into more but when they do set it off the metal ball opens up and the bubbles start coming out of it and it just looks so cool and how i would totally expect a thing that uh, that is caused by the release of something to look it looks almost medical yeah yeah yeah, suits famously don't last very long because they're all generally foam and rubber and those just don't last long. They also get beat up. They get beat up. Set on fire, dragged through water. They often get stored in warehouses that aren't climate controlled. So they gen- tend to not last longer than uh, a couple of years, maybe even not that. But the oxygen destroyer has lasted. It's still around. And that's great. And I want to I want to steal it. <laughs> he doesn't mean that. I will take it for my own. <laughs> he doesn't mean that. So Ogata and Sarazawa dive into the water with the auction destroyer. They set the bomb. Sarazawa sets the bomb. And Ogata starts raising up. And Sarazawa doesn't. You see Ogata getting to the top of the water. And he's screaming down for Sarazawa to come up too. Sarazawa isn't making any moves to come up. You see Godzilla just kind of lounging on the ocean floor. Very cute, all curled up. He's just chilling. And um, Sarazawa sits down against a rock. Just kind of is sitting there watching all of this happen, not really reacting. He says to Ogata, who's still on the radio with him, he says, I hope you two will be happy. Meaning he obviously knew that Emiko loves Ogata. How could you not know? They don't hide it at all. At all. They're so bad at hiding it. (laughs) And he cuts his own oxygen line. And I had the thought of, what would have happened if the oxygen line is still in the water when the oxygen destroyer goes up? Would it explode the oxygen tank on the ship? Oh, good question. (laughs) Like, I wonder if that's part of why he cut his oxygen line. Other than letting them be not attached to him anymore, not having to, like, cut it themselves. But I wonder if the oxygen line would act like a gas line and kind of work its way back up the hose to the tank. I don't know. That's a good question. Or is it a tank or is it just open to the air? Also a good question. I don't know anything about diving, especially 1954 diving. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) So we see Godzilla become bones and then nothing. And there is no question that Godzilla is dead. Not like earlier where they just dropped the bombs like, okay, he's dead now, everyone. There's zero question that he's dead. Remember this. This creates a giant plot hole in a later movie. (laughs) 
And then everyone is just really morose at this point. Nobody's celebrating like you would think they would. In every other movie, I feel like they celebrate after you destroy the monster. Nobody's celebrating. They do a formal salute. And it, I can't even tell if it's because of Sarazawa's death or because no one's really 100% happy that Godzilla died. Because... That whole movie, there's been back and forth about should we kill him or not. You know, mostly one guy, but it's just very serious. Yeah. It's not a happy ending. Did you happen to write down Yamane's last words? I paraphrased it. I have, if nuclear testing continues, another Godzilla may appear. They won't have another oxygen destroyer to kill him with because Sarazawa died with his research. And... That line is both, like, thematically appropriate, like it's supposed to be, you know, as long as we continue this terrible thing we're doing, Mm -hmm. we're going to keep getting terrible things happening to us. But it also is the one line we needed to allow... Sequels. Sequels. (laughs) Yes. Gotta think with your pocketbooks. A little bit. Um, I don't know if that's what they were planning with that line. No, I think it's more the thematic thing, but I'm just a little jaded against any big companies. But the studio definitely, Toho was like, oh, hey, there could be more, eh? (laughs) And they did make a sequel the next year. That's true. So. So that's the movie. Yeah, that's the movie. Ends ends with a sunrise set? A sun on a horizon. <laughs> um, there were a few things that stood out to me. The fact that there weren't a lot of roars throughout the whole movie. There was maybe ten total, mm-hmm. which I thought was really, first of all, very different than some of the later movies where you get them constantly oh, throughout yeah. the whole fight. And I kind of think it works really well in that they don't overuse it. It's very poignant when it does happen as someone who has recently gone back and watched old gamera movies (laughs) let me tell you you can get very tired of one roar over and over and over again (laughs) godzilla's roar changes a lot he there's a lot of variance in his roars and this movie uses it very sparingly and i think that you're right also Everyone in this movie was super underqualified for the tasks they were doing. <laughs> Why did they bring in a paleontologist from the get-go? Yeah. Why did Ogata, this salvage specialist, and Emiko, this... Does she have a high school degree? Go on this trip to the village that was destroyed. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> they had a scientist who was a radiation specialist. Why wasn't he in charge? Why wasn't he brought in? <laughs> Why, yeah. When the ships were all going down, they, the first person they called was Dr. Yamane. The paleontologist. The paleontologist. So there's a, there's a few issues, but I do love this movie. It's a very good movie. Yes. It's totally resets my expectations for what a monster movie is or what a monster movie should be. It kind of... I don't want to say breaks the mold. It is the mold. But it it definitely defies all the stereotypes that we've set. Yeah. 
There are two more people I want to talk about. There's two big holes in the people that I have not talked about. I have not talked about the producer and the director. Mm-hmm. I've talked about every other major person. The producer is Tomoyuki Tanaka. I've mentioned his name. I haven't talked about him very is much. Is he the one who hired the suit actor? Yes. He ended up producing every single one of Toho's kaiju movies up to 1995. Wow. He, he basically decided this was going to be his thing. He also produced a ton of other movies. <laughs> Tanaka was also the guy who brought together the Dream Team, as they're called. Um, <laughs> the he, Power Rangers. The Power Rangers. It was the Dream Team is Tomoyuki Tanaka as producer, Ishiro Honda as director, Akira Ufkube on on music, <laughs> uh, and Eiji Tsuburaya as special effects director. And I've heard you call these the big four, right? The, the big four is when I've heard them called the dream team, the, you know, they're the guys who invented the genre, essentially. And kept it alive. And kept it alive. Honestly, it's, Tanaka's the reason why we have the genre, because he's the one who kept bringing them together. He's the one who kept saying, we need to keep making these movies. He saw that there was, there was a call for them. He was the one who said, there's money in this. And he was the one who kept pushing money to these movies. Tanaka's a big... He doesn't get named a lot as a you know someone who we should thank for these movies being made. Because he didn't get his fingers in there like the other three do. But he believed in the people making it. And exactly. he's the one who made it happen. Exactly. The director, Ishiro Honda is best known for making kaiju and other sci-fi and tokusatsu movies. He directed eight Godzilla movies. He directed Rodan. He directed Mothra, Matango, which is a giant mushroom people (laughs) movie. It's not technically a kaiju movie, but it may or may not be on our list anyway. (laughs) Um, He was good friends with Akira Kurosawa when he came back from being drafted in World War II. He worked under Kurosawa as an assistant director for a few of his movies. And that's where he got a lot of his movie-making experience, was under Akira Kurosawa, who is widely considered the greatest Japanese filmmaker of all time. So he has this great training, and he's best friends. They often called each other good friends. Which is cool that two directors of very different genres can respect each other so much. As opposed to, I feel like a lot of the times different genres discredit the other as not being valid. And it's cool that they have this mutual respect for each other. That's definitely a Western thing, I think. (laughs) Uh, I don't think that happens very much in Japan, at least in my knowledge. Akira Kurosawa's key actors would often just like beg him to go jump into a (laughs) kaiju movie like... Uh, we'll talk about this when it comes to it, but he had one specific actor who would be in all of Kurosawa's movies who just, like, begged him, I want to go be an alien in this new <laughs> Godzilla movie. And he was great. Honda's experience in World War II shaped everything. Is the reason why he is what he is, is the reason why these movies are what they are. Obviously, this movie cares a lot about World War II. Cares a lot about what war is about what nuclear weapons are things like that 
Honda's experience in the war gave him a strong pacifistic streak. You will almost never see in a Honda-directed film a hero, a protagonist, raise a gun against another character. I feel like I remember one moment where somebody does. Not in this movie. Not in this movie. Not in this movie. You will always see themes of people coming together to work through their problems. This movie doesn't focus on it very much, but he often tries to create a sense of global community. He tries to bring in people who look American. He tries to bring in people who look African. He tries to, he tries to bring in as many people f- to bring, make a sense of a global community. And in this film, you can kind of sense that from the uh, how many women were in the movie. Not a ton of women were in the movie. <laughs> but they did have important roles. They did have their voices heard. They did move the plot along and created action by their purposeful action. Nothing would be done in this movie if Emiko wasn't in it. She is the one who kind of brought all the characters together and got Sarazawa to bring in the final solution. Yes. So we'll be talking about those things as we watch more of his movies, but he's very important and he his ethos comes out in his movies very strongly. He has a strong message he wants to send and that's that we should all be working towards peace. I also wanted to share one little it's a very famous story. I don't think this one's apocryphal. It could be, but I'm pretty sure this actually happened. Honda and Subaraya, special effects director, were standing on top of a department store, and they were basically planning what Godzilla's path was going to be throughout the city. And they said, so this building will be destroyed, and the fires will spread from here to here, and they were just planning it out. And some people overheard them. Oh, no! (laughs) And called the security guards on them. At least, at least this was... Not America post 9-11. Yes. That would get you immediately thrown in jail. Yeah. So they, they had a, a talking to, <laughs> famously. It didn't get them in any major trouble, but that, that is a, a, a famously kind of beloved story. And I think that might be that might be all of my fun facts. Oh, <laughs> one, one other thing is uh, their budget for this movie, 64 million yen, which was... Uh, is equivalent to 600,000-ish dollars. Um, That is nothing. It was the biggest budget for a movie in Japan ever at the time. That's crazy. I'm so used to these million-dollar movies that we have. Yeah. So its budget was 64 million yen. It's made in Japanese box office uh, 152 million yen. Which so is more than doubled. Yeah, which is a million or 1.4 million ish American dollars. And that's only in Japanese release? That's only Japanese box office. That's crazy. Yeah. So it, it did very well. <laughs> uh, it was a huge hit. And it has been a huge hit overseas. There, like we're going to talk about later, there was an American re release. Recut. We'll talk about that when we get there. There was also an Italian recut. <laughs> We're not going to watch that one because too many versions of the same movie will drive us crazy. 
There's, I believe, a German recut. I'm not positive about that one, but it's, it is a, a, a beloved film. And we obviously didn't talk about all the things there are to talk about about this movie alone, but for sake of time and the sanity of our listeners, we decided to trim it down a bit and a lot of this can also get talked about in other movies because a lot of these people, like you said, the director, the special effects director, all of these people are in many, many movies. And I realize that, you know, you might be looking at the time of this podcast at this point and going, they trimmed it down? (laughs) Oh, trust me, we did. Future podcasts will be shorter. (laughs) I had a question for you. Oh, sure. Actually, I had a question that is three questions. Oh, okay. Uh, Is this movie anti-American? I think that they skated around that because the only... Because they don't ever say America. Ever. Mm -hmm. It's not mentioned. Even if they are referencing many American things. I don't... I think it kind of skates that line. Sure. Because they avoided saying America at all. Sure. Do you think this movie is anti-government? I don't see the government having played much of a role in this movie. Like they did, obviously. The military is the government in this movie. But they didn't make it worse. They didn't get in the way. They just had bad ideas (laughs) that didn't work. Yeah. I don't think it was anti-government. I can see it being more anti-American than anti-government. And do you think this movie is anti-war? I think that's the biggest one that I would agree with because, like you said, just knowing Shiro Honda's background and the fact that they didn't mention any specific players, they're making it about they're making it about the war itself. The fact that Sarazawa didn't want anyone, including Japan, getting hold of his weapon. I think, says that they think that war is a human condition as opposed to belonging to any nation in particular. Yeah. Those are the three most common interpretations that you'll see about the movie. I think a lot of people who just kind of see the movie once and just don't think much about it are like, oh, it's anti-American because it's about nukes and stuff. I don't think there's actually a lot to go off of on that because... It's it's about anti-nukes more than anything. I know that wasn't one of the options <laughs> that I gave you. Um, well, I mean, that was a no-brainer. It's not really worth mentioning even. It's very obviously anti-nuke, but they never... They don't talk about foreign policy. They don't talk about foreigners at all. They don't talk about... They talk about the war, but they don't mention America at all. And anti-government i actually think that there is some subtle implication that it is anti-government because every government scene they are completely impotent they just argue with each other they don't do anything that's true i i just i've seen more kaiju movies of the few that i have seen where they just get in the way right and kind of bumble around or at least in this they Came up with plans, executed those plans. They didn't work, but no one knew what was going to work. The other part of that is the most iconic building he destroys. Maybe the only That's iconic. That's true. 
building he destroys is the Daya building, which is the government building. Now, that is a government building put in place by Americans. <laughs> so maybe there is some evidence that it's anti-American. But I do know, I have heard from the commentary on this movie that apparently audiences in the theater cheered when he destroyed the Daya building. And I believe that the common feeling was in Japan at the time was generally anti-government because they felt like the government had kept them in the war too long. Like they were forcing Japan, Japanese people to get killed in this war that they didn't believe in. So there's maybe a sense that this movie is sort of like a, a way to express that frustration maybe uh and then i think it's very clearly anti-war because yeah everything you said (laughs) and like we said honda just he wants peace he wants everyone to be friends so we did talk about how we would want to we thought it'd be a good idea to end all of our episodes with who do we recommend this movie to and i i would say basically anyone this movie in particular godzilla 1954 is such a classic, not just of its genre, but of all movies. It's such a classic. It stands up there with Seven Samurai and with, you know, all of our classics. And it did create several genres. It has this cast of very important people to film. It's a movie that calls to the little boys who love and little girls who love just watching giant monsters wreck things but it also has things in there for people who want to dive in and think about the effects of world war ii and bombings and government and anti-americanism and all these things you can get as much or as little as you want to out of this movie absolutely and I know you have a bajillion more reasons because I, yeah. there's a reason you're a fan of these movies. I uh, I actually got to go see this movie in the theater in San Francisco. They had a special showing of this movie in in the theater in San Francisco. And there were a bunch of people who had never seen any Godzilla movie there in the theater. And they came out going wow, I didn't realize that these movies were like that. And it, like, had opened up their eyes, and I think that this movie does that. Now, does it prepare them for most of what the other Godzilla movies are like? <laughs> no. Probably not. <laughs> there there are a few. There are a few that are kind of like this. None of them ever get to this point. None of them are ever this dour. <laughs> but this is a good movie. This is often considered one of the best Japanese movies of all time for a very good reason. So yeah, that was our first episode. Godzilla 1954. And you can kind of get an idea of what you're going to expect going forward. But hopefully you'll get a lot of fun out of this, just like we will. Mm-hmm. Shorter episodes. Yes, uh, we promise. If you need to get in contact with us, any questions, comments, concerns, we have an email address. Kaiju Island Podcast at gmail.com. And we have a Twitter account. At Island Kaiju. You can also just search for Kaiju Island Podcast on Twitter. 
we'll probably get some more stuff up somewhere. I don't know. But right now, that's what we got. <laughs> so thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you.